Hello and welcome to the Whitney Talking News Summer Magazine for 2023, which we're recording in the Whitney Methodist Building on Monday, June the 5th. I'm Peter Bean, I edited this magazine, and sitting beside me at the recording controls is Eric Imerson. Now, it seemed to us that this coronation year, the most suitable theme for the magazine would be coronations. So I hope you'll enjoy some of the facts we've discovered about coronations since 1066. Now, our contributors to this recording in alphabetical order are Alan Bailey, Peter B., Peter Brading, Debbie Diakon, Jane Holmes, Nigel Hutt James, Valerie Palmer and Alan Ravel. So, Nigel, let's begin with the very first coronation to be held in Westminster Abbey in 1066. 1066, this is a date we all know and associate with the Battle of Hastings and William the Conqueror. But it is also the date when coronations began in Westminster Abbey. Edward the Confessor's great project, the building of Westminster Abbey, was completed in 1065, and shortly afterwards, Edward died, leaving no heir. On his deathbed, the surrounding barons declared that he had named Harold Earl of Wessex as his successor, whereupon Harold had a very hasty coronation to cement his position. However, in France, William, Duke of Normandy, and Edward's first cousin, claimed he had promised the throne, uh, been promised the throne by the confessor. Fearing invasion, Harold persuaded the barons, each of whom had their own private armies, to lend him men and build up a large army in anticipation of William's invasion. This was a time when England was a very rural country, and everyone depended on the land for their livelihood. And when harvest time came, Harold lost much of his army, who rushed back to their villages to get the harvest in, to prepare their communities for the harsh winter months. With a reduced army, Harold then had to rush to the north to repel an invasion from the Viking force at the Battle of Stamford Bridge. Whilst Harold was fighting the Vikings, William amassed a large army and invaded immediately, seizing the southern towns of Canterbury, Winchester and Dover. Harold rushed back with his tired and depleted army to confront William at Hastings. At first, Harold held the advantageous high ground and William's army could make no progress. Then he ordered his troops to turn and pretend to flee the battlefield. Harold's troops, exalted, rushed down the hill to see off the Normans and then William's army turned swiftly round and proceeded to slaughter Harold's army. The battle took place on October the 14th, and William, who was the illegitimate son of Robert, Duke of Normandy, and known in Normandy as William the Bastard, held his coronation in Westminster Abbey on December the 25th, 1066, and it became known as Willicium the Conqueror, and sent the format for future coronations. Right now, Alan, you've got a very different version of the Battle of Hastings, haven't you? Indeed, I have, Peter. Yes. So, the Battle of Hastings. I'll tell of the Battle of Hastings as happened in days long gone by, when Duke William became King of England and Harold got shot in the eye. It were this way. One day in October, the Duke, who was always a toff, having no battles on at the moment, had given his lads a day off. 
They'd all taken boats to go fishing when some chap in Conqueror's ear said, Hey, let's go and put Breeze up the Saxons, said Bill. By gum, that's an idea. Then turning around to his soldiers, he lifted his big Norman voice, shouting, Hands up, who's coming to England? That was swank, because they hadn't no choice. They started away about tea time. The sea was so calm and so still, and at quarter to ten the next morning, they arrived at a place called Beck's Hill. King Harold came up as they landed, his face full of venom and hate. He said, if you've come for a gatter, you've got here six weeks too late. At this, William rose cool but haughty and said, give us none of your cheek. You'd best have your throne reupholstered. I'll be wanting it to you next week. When Harold heard this here defiance, with, with rage he turned purple and blue and shouted some rude words in Saxon, to which William answered, And you? T'were a beautiful day for a battle. The Normans set off with a will, and when both sides was duly assembled, they tossed for the top of the hill. King Harold, he won the advantage. On the hilltop he took up his stand, with his knaves and his cads all around him, on his horse, with his hawk in his hand. The Normans had note in their favour, their chance of a victory seemed small, for the slope of the field were against them, and the wind in their face and all. The kick-off were sharp at 230 as soon as the whistle had went, both sides started banging each other till the swineherds could hear them in Kent. The Saxons had best line of forwards, well armed both with buckler and sword, but the Normans had best combination, and when half-time came, nothing had scored. So the Duke called his cohorts together and said, Let's pretend that we're beat. Once we get Saxons down on the level, we'll cut off their means of retreat. So they ran, and the Saxons ran after, just exactly as William had planned, leaving Harold alone on the hilltop, on his horse, with his orc in his hand. When the conqueror saw what had happened, a bow and arrow he drew. He went right up to Harold and shot him. He were off... But what could they do? The Normans turned round in a fury and gave back both parry and thrust till the fight were all over, bar shouting, and you couldn't see Saxons for dust. And after the battle were over, they found Harold so stately and grand, sitting there with an eye full of arrow, and his horse with his orc. In his hand. Now, for every coronation that's taken place in Westminster Abbey since 1066, there have been eight main ingredients needed, and here they are. Number one, the recognition. 
When the monarch enters the abbey, they are taken by the archbishop to face the east, south, west and the north sides of the abbey to call for recognition of the sovereign using the words, Sirs, I here present unto you the monarch's name, your undoubted king and queen, wherefore all who are come this day to do your homage and service Are you willing to do the same? Number two, the oath. After the people present in the Abbey acclaim the monarch, they promise to govern the UK and all their overseas territories, exercise law and justice, and maintain the Protestant religion. Number three, the anointing. The monarch is then seated in the coronation chair and anointed by the archbishop. This was the only part of Elizabeth II's coronation not to be photographed or televised as she regarded it as a sacred moment. Holy oil is poured from an ampulla onto the coronation spoon, a late 12th century silver gilt spoon which was the only item of the medieval crown jewels not to have been melted down and sold off by the parliamentarians after the English Civil War. Number four, the investing. The monarch is enrobed in the Colobium Sindonis, a simple white linen shift, over which is placed a more ornate super tunica, a gold silk full-length sleeved coat. They receive items of royal regalia, including the orb, surmounted by a cross, a ring representing the sovereign's marriage to the nation, the the scepter with dove and the scepter with cross. The latter contains the Kulinan One, also known as the Star of Africa, the largest clear-cut diamond in the world, given as a much larger uncut gem to Edward VII in 1907. Five. The crowning. St Edward's crown is brought from the high altar and taken to the coronation chair by the dean, who hands it to the archbishop. After it's placed on the monarch's head, the congregation shout three times in unison, God save the king. Number six, the enthronement. The sovereign is taken from the coronation chair and is seated on the throne, where the statement beginning... Stand firm and hold fast from henceforth, he said. In its original Latin, the formula was first used in 10th century English coronation. 7. The homage. The Archbishop of Canterbury and senior clergy are traditionally the first to then kneel in homage to the crowned and anointed sovereign followed by the royal dukes and representatives of the peerage. Number eight, final procession. The monarch arrives at the abbey wearing crimson robes of state. After they retire to St Edward's Chapel, they return in procession through the abbey, wearing the imperial state crown and a robe of purple velvet prior to leaving through the great west door. Here's an article in a poem about Bad King John. 
Of all the monarchs crowned in Westminster Abbey, John is probably the most unpopular and has always been portrayed as the baddie in Robin Hood films. Greedy and cruel, John imposed crippling taxes after he quickly claimed the throne after the death of his very popular brother, Richard the Lionheart, who died after an arrow wound sustained whilst fighting in France became gangrenous. This is what hysterically historical has to say about John. King John. King John appeared in 1215 at Runnymede upon the Green. He'd got the Baron's invitation to join them for a celebration. At first he cried, you must be balmy. But then he saw the Baron's army. Since it was several thousand strong, John said, "Mm, perhaps I'll come along. They told him, you'll become a martyr unless you sign this Magna Charta. And then they started to unroll a 63-foot parchment scroll. It curled right round the chair he sat in. John grumbled, this is all in Latin. But though it's hard to make it out, I know just what it's all about. More liberties you want to see given to you instead of me. They said, you understand it fine, so sign here on the dotted line. But when the ink was hardly dry, John thought, those barons I'll defy. A foreign army I shall bring to take back power for the king. But as his army crossed the wash, a great big wave came up and splosh, it swept away his arms and money. The soldiers didn't think it funny. They all of them went home to dry and didn't even say goodbye. King John, who couldn't take a beating, then killed himself by overeating of lampreys. They're a kind of limpet. He ate a feast and didn't skimp it. The greedy king was dead and gone, so gourmets all be warned by John. If for longevity your wishes, go easy on the seafood dishes. Henry III. Henry was crowned king in 1216 after the death of the very unpopular King John. And in 1236, when he was 28, he married the 12-year-old Eleanor of Provence. Five days later, Eleanor was crowned King Regnant in Westminster Abbey, and Henry in attendance wearing his full coronation regalia. The London streets were packed with onlookers, and houses were draped with hangings and flags. The King's trumpeter led the procession, followed by wealthy London citizens carrying 360 gold and silver cups to serve the guests at the banquet following the ceremony. Henry and Eleanor walked from the Abbey to Westminster Hall under silk canopies carried by barons. They dined on venison and fish, washed down with plenty of wine, and were entertained by minstrels and other musicians. The couple went on to have five sons and three daughters. Henry venerated Edward the Confessor, who had ordered the abbey to be built, and during Henry's reign he had the abbey rebuilt in the style that we see it in today. And I have for you now a coronation quiz. Ten multiple-choice questions, and these come thanks to that uh, rather Republican newspaper in Fleet Street, The Guardian. So question one, 
Which monarch had the first coronation to take place at Westminster Abbey? Was it William the Conqueror in 1066, Edward the Confessor in 1042, or Edmund II in 1016? Question two. What was the oldest English piece of royal regalia that was used in the coronation of King Charles III? Was it St. Edward's Crown, St. Luke's University Cross, or was it the coronation spoon? Question three. The stone of scone or scone will be present, or was present rather, for the ceremony. When was it formally returned to Scotland? Was it in November 1996 under John Major's government, November 2001 under Tony Blair's government, or November 2008 under Gordon Brown's government? Question four. What did Pope Francis give to King Charles so it could be used at the service? Was it a prayer book dating from the 14th century, two shards of the true cross said to be from the cross used in the crucifixion of Jesus, or was it a letter from Henry VIII to Pope Clement VII dating from 1530? Question 5. King Charles III's coronation coins feature the monarch wearing the Tudor crown, what is unique about this piece of regalia associated with the 2023 coronation? Now, it's A, B or C here. So A, is it a new crown made for the occasion? B, was it plundered from the Kingdom of Castile? Or C, it doesn't exist? Question six. What were the ingredients for the official coronation quiche? Aside from egg and pastry, obviously. And your choice of answers is spinach, broad beans, cheese and tarragon. Or was it butternut, sage and hazelnut? Or was it salmon, asparagus and lemon? Question seven. What did Channel 4 show on television instead of the coronation? Was it Frankie Boyle's farewell to the monarchy? Was it Andrew, the Problem Prince, a documentary by Emily Maitlis? Or was it the Windsor's coronation special with Harry Enfield playing the king? It's a trick question, this one, by the way. Question eight. An error by the elderly Archbishop of Canterbury of the day, Frederick Temple, meant which monarch had the crown placed on their head back to front at their coronation? Was it William IV in 1831, Queen Victoria in 1838, or Edward VII in 1902? Question nine. A coronation Claims Office was created to hear claims by those who say they have a hereditary or traditional right for their family or their business to perform a particular duty at the coronation. 
How many claims do you think were received according to Oliver Dowden answering in the House of Commons? Was it 27? Was it 68? Or was it more than 200? And my final question, who provided television commentary of Queen Elizabeth II's coronation in Westminster Abbey for the BBC? Was it David Dimbleby? Was it Jonathan Dimbleby? Or was it Richard Dimbleby? Questions later in the programme. Answers later in the programme, I should say. You've had the questions. Henry V. Henry V is a personal hero of Charles III and has become immortalised by his victory over the French at Agincourt and by the way he is portrayed by Shakespeare in his play. Laurence Olivier was persuaded to act in and produce a blockbuster film of the play to boost morale during World War II. Henry was 26 when he became king in 1413. Not a lot is recorded about his coronation, but he was described as being a handsome young man of six foot three inches tall, slim with dark hair and clean shaven. He had a prominent nose and a ruddy complexion, with eyes that flashed from the mildness of a dove's to the brilliance of a lion's. Before he became King Henry, before, before he became king, Henry was one of the lads, greatly inclined to riots and wild company. All the commentators of the time agreed that the coronation changed him from a wayward youth to a man of faith and integrity. Henry's coronation took place in Westminster Abbey in April and was accompanied by unusual weather with storms and driving snow burying men, animals and houses, creating much danger and loss of life. Because the post-coronation banquet was during Lent, it was a meat-free affair. During his short nine-year reign, Henry proved to be a great warrior, capturing large swathes of northern France, including Paris. Charles VI of France came to recognise him as his heir apparent to the French nation, especially after Henry married his daughter. Henry died prematurely whilst fighting in France, leaving a widow of 20 and a nine-month-old son and heir. England was ruled by a regency council until Henry's son reached 16 and was crowned as Henry VI. But Henry was an intellectual rather than a warrior and founded Eton College, King's College Cambridge and Also's College Oxford. And the French regained all the territory that his father had won. He was disposed, deposed by Richard of York who proclaimed himself Edward IV and is believed to have murdered Henry VI whilst he was imprisoned in the Tower of London. The Coronation Chair The Coronation Chair was used for the first time at the coronation of Edward II in 1308. The chair was elevated on a wooden dais before the high altar of Westminster Abbey. It had been made by the order of Edward I 
and designed to hold the Stone of Schoon, otherwise known as the Stone of Destiny, which he had seized from Scotland in 1296. The chair is made of oak and is decorated with patterns of birds, foliage and animals on a gilt background. The chair is six feet nine inches high and has had an eventful history. It was taken across to Westminster Hall for Oliver Cromwell to sit in when he was crowned Lord Protector after the Civil War. During less reverential times, it was defaced by generations of Westminster schoolboys, one of whom carved, P. Abbott slept in this chair on the 5th to the 6th of July, 1800. In 1914, a bomb thought to have been placed by suffragettes blew a corner off the chair. To protect it from the bombing in the Second World War, it was evacuated to Gloucester Cathedral. In 1950, Scottish nationalists broke into the abbey and stole the Stone of Schoon, although it was recovered in time for the coronation of Elizabeth II in 1953. Henry VIII. Henry VIII has been the subject of hundreds of biographies, as well as being played with gusto by a host of actors including Charles Lawton, Richard Burton and Keith Michel. They portray a large, rather obese man, over-fond of food and drink. But it was not always so. Henry succeeded to the throne in April 1509 on the death of his father, Henry VII. He married Catherine of Aragon, widow of his older brother, on June eleventh, and their coronation took place two weeks later in Westminster Abbey. At the coronation, Henry was 17, six foot two inches tall, with a 32-inch waist, and he was described as good-looking, charismatic, with muscular arms and chest. The coronation was a lavish affair on the 21st of June, 1509. Catherine and Henry travelled by barge from Greenwich to the Tower of London, where they spent the night. Next day, they processed to Westminster in gold and crimson robes studded with rubies. The cheering crowds must have been in a very good mood as they partook of the free wine which flowed through the city conduits. The royal couple spent the night at the Palace of Westminster and next morning walked from Westminster Hall to the Abbey along a path of striped cloth strewn with flowers. During the coronation service, Henry and Catherine sat next to each other as they were anointed and crowned. And following the Abbey service, There was a banquet in Westminster Hall with sumptuous fine and delicate meats in plentiful abundance. There then followed several days of jousting and a deer hunt. As is well described, Catherine was unable to give birth to a male heir and her six pregnancies resulted in only one child surviving, the future Mary I. Twenty-four years later, Henry's second wife, Anne Boleyn, and her coronation took place with a spectacular four-day event, which must have been an ordeal for the Queen, who was six months pregnant with the future Elizabeth I. None of Henry's last four wives had a coronation ceremony. King Henry VIII The eighth King Henry whined and dined and said, I'm not the marrying kind. He then proceeded, as you know, to marry six wives in a row, which shows that kings, however strong, can sometimes be completely wrong. 
What's more, King Henry was inclined each time he wed to change his mind. Queen Catherine, his number one, had come from Spain, that land of sun. Each day she'd pick a a bull to fight, then play the castanets all night. The king said, I prefer the flute. You get the order of the boot. But when he wrote and asked the Pope, he got the answer, (laughs) not a hope. A marriage is for keeps, of course. Our church does not permit divorce. Said Henry, since you take that tone, I'll start a new church of my own. There were six queens in Henry's reign, two Annes, three Catherines, and a Jane. And people said, as each went past, I always said it wouldn't last. Fair Anne Boleyn, his second queen, quite lost her head on Tower Green. Jane Seymour died. Then Anne of Cleves was cast away like autumn leaves. Then Henry married Catherine Howard, but she was faithless. Henry glowered. He thundered, this has got to stop, madam, you're going for the chop. The last queen stayed. Did he adore her, or did he simply die before her? For ages Henry's record stood. He'd get it back now if he could. Today he'd emigrate for good and be the king of Hollywood. Now an article about Queen Elizabeth I. Elizabeth, the last of the Tudors, succeeded her half-sister Mary in 1558 at the age of 25. She was a very talented young lady, able to speak six languages, play the lute, write poetry, enjoy horse riding and hunting. She was a popular monarch after the tempestuous reign of Bloody Mary, who had condemned 280 Protestant dissenters to be burned at the stake during her five-year reign. The new queen quickly appointed a group of commissioners to help her organise a three-day spectacle for her coronation. The spectacle began with a river pageant along the Thames from Whitehall to the Tower of London, where Elizabeth spent the night before progressing to Westminster Hall. More than a thousand people took part in the procession to Westminster Hall, with Elizabeth dressed in a robe of cloth of gold, seated beneath a decorated canopy, drawn by knights on either side of the litter. The processional route was decorated with colourful cloths and tapestries, Elizabeth had to stop along the route to witness five pageants performed for her entertainment. The procession showed Elizabeth's undoubted skill in public relations. She stopped to accept nosegays, paused to listen to a children's choir and stand with arms outstretched. Elizabeth's was the last coronation to be conducted according to the Latin service of medieval times but Elizabeth ensured that the coronation oath was was unequivocally Protestant and understood by all. After the crowning, Elizabeth changed into a rich mantle and surcoat of purple trimmed with ermine 
and she once more played to the crowds, beaming and greeting them as she processed to Westminster Hall for the coronation banquet. The festivities lasted for six hours when Elizabeth retired to bed at 9pm, saying she was rather tired. During her 45-year reign, Elizabeth presided over a time of great achievement, defeating the Spanish Armada, encouraging the great adventurers of Drake and Raleigh, and the great cultural developments through Shakespeare, Marlowe, Spencer and Bacon. Charles II. Charles was a boy of 12 at the start of the Civil War and escaped to France only to return to Scotland in 1650 where he raised an army of 10,000 men and was crowned king at Scone. However, Cromwell's army defeated him and he fled to France again. After Cromwell's death, Charles returned in triumph to be crowned at Westminster Abbey in 1661, the only monarch to be crowned twice. Charles's coronation was the last one to feature a procession from the Tower of London to Westminster Hall on the eve of the ceremony. It also saw the creation of the regalia, which is used today to replace the items destroyed by Cromwell, by Cromwell's regime, which had been sold off or melted down. Thanks to the diarist Samuel Pepys, who attended the coronation and the following banquet, we have one of the most detailed accounts of a coronation. Charles had arrived back in London on his 30th birthday in May 1660, but had to wait 11 months before all the regalia and vestments were replaced and the coronation could take place. The bill for the new regalia came to £12,186, 7 shillings and sixpence, £1.8 billion in today's money. The coronation procession left the tower at 10am, with participants being told to make sure their horses were not unruly or stinking. There were 1,000 participants on horseback and thousands more on foot. Once again, the conduits were filled with red and white wine and Pepys recalled that it was impossible to relate the glory of this day. Next day, Pepys gave an account of the proceedings from his seat in the Abbey, where he waited from 4am until the King arrived at 11am. The highlight was witnessing the crown being put on Charles's head, when a great shout began. Unfortunately, Pepys had nipped out of the Abbey to relieve himself before the King had done all his ceremonies. Pepys described the banquet at Westminster Hall and listening to music of all sorts before the King left at 6pm. But as you will hear later, Pepys' celebrations did not end there. Charles reigned for 25 years, worked with Parliament, saw a cultural revolution had a dozen mistresses, including Nell Gwynne, and coped with the Great Plague and the Fire of London. Before leaving the coronation, Pepys witnessed a spat between the barons of the Sank Ports and the king's footmen. The former traditionally carried the canopy above the monarch's head during the processions, 
and then had the perquisite of being allowed to tear it to shreds and sell off the pieces. After the royal party, there was an unseemly tussle as the footman snatched the canopy and then the barons tried to grab it back. But could not do it until my Lord Duke of Albemarle caused it to be put into Sir R. Pye's hand till tomorrow to be decided, said Pepys. Pepys's coronation celebrations ended with a bonfire party at Axe Yard, just south of the modern-day Downing Street, where he and his wife drank the king's health upon our knees. Thanks to the largesse of another guest, Mr Thornbury, yeoman of the wine cellar to the king, who provided the celebratory booze. The diarist recalls, We drank the king's health and nothing else till one of the gentlemen fell down stark drunk and there lay spewing. He too ended up in a bit of a state when my head began to hum and I to vomit. And after he crashed out, I waked and found myself wet with my spewing. Thus did the day end with joy everywhere. There wasn't much joy the next day when he waked in the morning with my head in a sad taking through the last night's drink, which I am very sorry for. Queen Victoria. Victoria succeeded to the throne aged 18 in June 1837 and her coronation took place a year later in June 1838. Victoria kept a diary from 1831 until her death in 1901 and left a detailed account of 2,300 words of her red-letter day. Two things stand out from her account. First, it was a public spectacle with the journey to and from the Abbey taking an hour each way. And secondly, there were practically no rehearsals there was a whole catalogue of disasters. Victoria was the first monarch to reside in Buckingham Palace and was woken at 4am by the noise of the crowd and the guns in the park. She rose for breakfast at 7am and noted the crowds all round the palace. London was abuzz with excitement, with over 400,000 visitors crowded into the capital, with Hyde Park becoming a vast encampment. The government had budgeted £70,000 for the event and put up stands for the public along much of the the route. Victoria wore a crimson velvet robe over a white satin embroidered dress and commented that despite its beauty, the four-ton golden coach offered a terrible ride. Victoria wrote that it was a fine day and the crowds of good-humoured and loyal people exceeded what I have ever seen. I cannot say how proud I was to be a queen on such an occasion. of such a nation. Victoria arrived at the Abbey shortly after 11.30 and one witness described her as like a a girl on her birthday. The ceremony was described as a botched coronation. The sub-dean said there was a continual difficulty and embarrassment and the Queen never knew what she was to do. The maids of honour kept falling over their own trains. Following her anointing, the Queen retired to St Edward's Chapel and was unimpressed to see the altars with, covered with sandwiches and bottle of wine, bottles of wine on it. Back in the Abbey, after changing her gown, Victoria felt great pain as the Archbishop jammed the coronation ring made to fit her little finger onto her index finger. Oh. 
The attending Bishop of Bath and Wells had turned two pages of the order of service by mistake and sent Victoria to St Edward's Chapel too early and then had to bring her back to fill in the section omitted. Pray tell me what I am to do, Victoria asked the sub-dean, for they do not know. The future Prime Minister, Disraeli, lamented the lack of rehearsal and spotted Lord Ward with his crown askew, knocking back champagne in the Abbey. After five five hours, the Abbey and two changes of dress, Victoria was allowed to leave. Victoria reigned for 64 years, married Prince Albert and had a happy domestic life giving birth to nine children. She was heartbroken when Albert died, and her reign was one of the great technical inventions, the railway system, the motor car, the telephone, and moving pictures. So now I have the answers to the quiz questions that I posed earlier. I'm not going to read all of the multiple-choice answers that you could have had. I'll just read the correct one. So question one was, which monarch had the first coronation take place in Westminster Abbey? And as you've heard from one of our earlier articles, the answer was William the Conqueror. Question two was, what was the oldest English piece of royal regalia that was used in the coronation of King Charles III? And the answer, again, which you may have heard, was the coronation spoon, small silver gilt spoon first recorded in the Royal Collection more than 600 years ago. The Stone of Scone, or Scone, I'll say again, um, was uh, the subject of question three, and it was present at the ceremony, but when was it formally returned to Scotland? And the answer is 1996, under John Major's government. Question four was, what did Pope Francis give to King Charles so it could be used at the service? And the answer was two shards of the true cross. The small fragments have been incorporated into the Cross of Wales, which was carried into Westminster Abbey. Question five, King Charles III's coronation coins feature the monarch wearing the Tudor crown. What is unique about this piece of royal regalia associated with uh, the coronation? Well, the answer is that it was the Tudor crown, also known as Henry VIII's crown, which was the imperial and state crown of English monarchs from around the time of Henry VIII until it was destroyed during the Civil War, reconstructed from depictions of it which survived in heraldry. And the ingredients for the official coronation quiz, which you may have eaten at one of the royal picnics on the uh, coronation weekend, the special ingredients were spinach, broad beans, cheese and tarragon. And the royal family's website had advised eat hot or cold with a green salad and boiled potatoes. Question seven was which Channel 4 show uh, was was on television instead of the coronation on their channel and the answer to those strange programs or those of the list of those three strange programs was all of them it was a long ceremony so question eight an error by the elderly archbishop of canterbury of the day frederick temple meant the monarch had the crown placed on their head back to front who was that well it was edward the seventh temple also had a very bad day much like the day at Victoria's coronation, as he also appeared to fumble the crown at one point. 
Question nine was uh, the Coronation Claims Office. How many claims had been received by people who say they have a hereditary or traditional right to perform a particular duty at the coronation? The answer was more than 200. And, he, and Oliver Dowden told MPs his office would work with experts from the royal household to determine which, if any, might play a part on the day. And the final question, who provided the television commentary of... Queen Elizabeth II's coronation in Westminster Abbey for the BBC Well, the only one who was old enough, and that's Richard Dimbleby, the father. Now, Debbie, you've got an account of Queen Elizabeth uh, II's coronation from one of her ladies-in-waiting. Yes, that's right. This is a reading taken extract from uh, the book by Anne Glenconner, uh, entitled Lady-in-Waiting... Uh, she had been a close friend to the royal family and particularly and became a devoted lady-in-waiting to Princess Margaret for the whole of her adult life. <clears throat> While staying in New York with friends one morning in February 1953, the maid came in and handed me a telegram. My first thought was that something bad had happened at home, but to my astonishment, the telegram read... Anne, you must come home. Stop. You've been asked to be a maid of honour at the Queen's coronation. Stop. Everybody was so excited and the telegram was handed round the table and read eagerly by all. Suddenly I found everybody was treating me like royalty, asking me to show them how to curtsy and wave like the Queen. One minute I was crammed onto a greyhound bus travelling round the US and the next I was being summoned home for months of rehearsals in preparation for taking part in Britain's most significant ceremony for a generation. I was absolutely thrilled to be chosen. So many people in my family had been equerries and ladies-in-waiting throughout the centuries and now I had been given a role. Just because I was the right height and size, as well as being an unmarried daughter of an earl, a duke or a marquis, the criteria for being chosen. I was to be one of six maids of honour, and I knew a few of the others very well. Rosie Spencer Churchill, Mary Bailey Hamilton and Jane Vane Tempest Stewart. I had never met the remaining two maids of honour, Jane Heathcote Drummond Willoughby and Moira Hamilton, and the rehearsal was conducted by the Duke of Norfolk, to which we came dressed in black suits, hats and gloves like our mothers, were formal affair, so there wasn't time for chatting. As hereditary Earl Marshal, the Duke of Norfolk had already been in charge of organising the coronation of King George VI, and while he was experienced, he left nothing to chance. He had 94 diagrams, each depicting different parts of a ceremony in which every minute was worked out and every movement within each minute prescribed. There were so many facets to arrange and get right that a great many people were involved in these rehearsals, including Richard Dimbleby, the BBC commentator, who would be broadcasting live to the nation he was so committed in the direct run-up that he moved out of his house and into his boat that he docked at Westminster Pier so he was as near to the Abbey as possible. 
Our role as maids of honour was to carry the Queen's 21-foot purple velvet, ermine-trimmed train in the procession, during which the six of us would walk directly behind the Queen. The mistress of the robes, the dowager, just, dowager, dowager Duchess of Devonshire, would come behind us, followed by the groom of the robes, then the two ladies of the bedchamber, my mother and the Countess of Euston, and behind them, the four women in waiting. I was being instructed on how to walk, how to stand, how to hold the train, and how to move with the Queen and lay it out behind her throughout the ceremony. The Queen took part in dozens of rehearsals, but she took part in only one of the final rehearsals with us. Prince Charles later told me how he'd gone into her study and seen her at her desk with the crown on her head. When he asked what she was doing, she explained that the crown was very heavy and she wanted to get used to wearing it. By now, we had a rehearsal each day for 10 days, always wearing our black suits, so it was terribly exciting when my dress arrived. All six maids of honour had the same design by Norman Hartnell, made from ivory silk with gold embroidery. The dresses weren't lined, which meant the underside of the embroidery was uncomfortably scratchy. But despite this, they looked sublime and we were all delighted. The headdresses were also beautiful, gold and pearl, similar to those made for the Queen's bridesmaids at her wedding five years before. A few days before the coronation, my sisters came up to London. The flat wasn't big enough for us all, and being preoccupied with the rehearsals, my mother left it too late to book a hotel room. So, uh, unfortunately, the flat only had one bedroom, which my mother took. I had to sleep on a mattress on the floor, and my poor Uncle Jack had to move out altogether. The day before the coronation, a page from Buckingham Palace delivered a diamond brooch in the shape of the letters E.R., designed in the Queen's own handwriting, with a little note from the Queen inviting me to wear it on the day. I felt another rush of excitement, fully aware how lucky I was to be part of history. That night, I hardly slept. I was far too excited, nervous, and my sleeping arrangements were no help. By 5am, the small flat was crammed with people putting ridiculous amounts of makeup on me and my mother to make sure we looked normal under the bright television lights. Outside, the day was grey. Rain had been falling all night and the temperature was brisk, the weather report saying that at 12 degrees it would be the coldest June day in a century. As my mother and I changed into our dresses, John Snag reminded all the listeners to stay tuned whilst also declaring the time that the live BBC television broadcast would start. A car arrived to take me to Westminster Abbey. The journey was one of the most surreal 15 minutes of my life. London was an extraordinary sight. The streets full of tremendously cheerful people sitting or standing in the pouring rain. After the doom and gloom of the post-war years, it was a especially incredible sight to behold. 
The news of Edmund Hillary reaching the summit of Mount Everest earlier that morning made the day all the more remarkable and added to the excitement. Hillary's got to the top of Everest, proclaimed the waiting crowds. When the car pulled up to the abbey, the crowd cheered, and nervously I got out and was quickly ushered through the door of the specially built annex. Richard Dimbleby, the BBC commentator, had been there since dawn, surveying the abbey from his seat in the Triforium, as had the choir boys who were fidgeting in theirs. I could feel their nervous energy, aware of how close and yet how distant the reality of the day ahead seemed. The abbey had been beautifully lit, the television lights creating a feeling of sunlight despite the dreary weather outside. So the stained glass windows shone and the light danced on all the embroidery and jewellery. People spoke in hushed tones and we watched as more and more arrived, the abbey filling thousands of people filing through the doors. It was like a scene from a medieval tapestry. Cecil Beaton sat up in the rafters drawing sketches and taking photographs while the choir sang the litany just before 10am. With an hour to go, the atmosphere mounted, the buzz of anticipation tangible. Then the Dean of Westminster, with his sepulchral face, the canons and other clergy processed from the altar to the Great West Door, delivering the regalia to the annex. Each piece was placed on a special table, one after another. The chalice, the scepter, the orb, King Edward's crown, all under the care of the great Lord Chamberlain. By now, the state procession was fully underway. The Queen in the gold state coach, pulled by eight greys, was scheduled to arrive at exactly 11am, having left Buckingham Palace with the Duke of Edinburgh at precisely 10.26am surrounded by a thousand guardsmen. Outside, the crowds in the specially built stands cheered louder and louder every time guests arrived. The higher their profile, the more enthralled the crowds became. When Winston Churchill, dressed as a knight of Vergata, arrived at the abbey, the crowd erupted, and a great roar went up when the Queen Mother and Princess Margaret got out of the Irish state coach. The Queen Mother glided in with Princess Margaret, who wore an embroidered light gold dress, and they both looked as if they'd come straight out of a fairy tale. All six of us waited together just outside the annex steps, ready to receive the Queen. We had been given vials of smelling salts, which we each stored in our long white gloves. Unfortunately, when the Archbishop of Canterbury came up to us all, Rosie had shaken his hand rather too hard and somehow broken her vial. Out came this appalling smell. Good heavens, the Archbishop exclaimed. What on earth have you done? At which we were all overcome by a fit of giggles. He didn't think it at all funny, wiped his hands with a hanky and disappeared off. When the crowd started cheering non-stop, a wall of sound coming from the direction of Victoria Embankment, we realised the Queen was approaching. Although I had known the royal family from an early age, seeing the Queen's golden coach appearing from around the corner, I felt as if I was dreaming. The cheers reached a crescendo, a crescendo as the coach stopped. 
In that moment, it felt as though the whole nation was bursting with excitement. The queen looked absolutely ravishing. She had the most wonderful complexion and her eyes were glistening. And finally, we and the nation set eyes on her coronation dress under her parliamentary train of crimson velvet, which by now we were very familiar with. The dress was exquisite, designed by Normal Hartnell of ivory silk, covered with embroidery of the rose, the thistle, and all the different emblems of the British Isles and Commonwealth. I have often been asked whether the Queen seemed nervous. She didn't. She was as calm as she always is. She knew exactly what to do. She had seen her father being crowned, and although she had been quite young, I'm sure she would have remembered everything. Once the Queen had got out of the carriage, we gathered up her crimson train, using the silk handles as the velvet rippled over our hands. The Duke of Norfolk stood on the steps of the Abbey in his ducal robes, just as he had done in May 1937 at the late King's coronation. He had greeted the young Princess Elizabeth that day, and now, 16 years later, he was receiving her as Queen Elizabeth II. Before she set off, a hush fell around the Queen who stood in front of us, ten yards away from the great west door. Then she turned to us and said, Ready, girls? We nodded and off we went after her, disappearing into the abbey. When the Queen reached the Gothic arch, the state trumpeters sounded and the congregation stood up in unison. As we followed the Queen up the aisle, the choir sang Hubert Parry's almost seven-minute-long anthem, I Was Glad. The choir boys now focused and resonant, their voices ringing out the glory of the occasion. Over the years, I have relived this historic day by watching the film footage, and I often find myself noticing new things. Inevitably, I find myself holding my breath, hoping that I or someone else won't make a mistake. Even though I know there won't be any catastrophic errors, there's still a sense of relief when it comes to an end and I can breathe again, much as I did on the day itself. The Symbolism on the Coronation Invitation The public have now seen the invitation sent out by King Charles III and Queen Camilla, to their family members and chosen guests to attend their coronation on Saturday the 6th of May 2023. The invitation was designed by Andrew Jameson. The border shows us an indication of how important wildlife and conservation of nature is to the royal couple, particularly to the king. At the top of it, on the left-hand side, is the king's coat of arms whilst that of Queen Camilla is on the right-hand side. Both of these include flowers of the nation. A Tudor rose for England, a daffodil for Wales, shamrock for Ireland, and a thistle represents Scotland. As one looks carefully at the border, there are many symbolisms to be found. One can find a lion and a unicorn, both of which are on each coat of arms. The late Queen Elizabeth II's favourite flower, a lily of the valley, is there too. Many wildflowers and insects are there, rosemary for remembrance, 
blue cornflowers for hope and anticipation, wild strawberries, pink dog roses for love and pleasure, bluebells represent humility and constancy. One can see a bee, a butterfly, a ladybird, a wren and lastly a robin. In the centre of the bottom border is the green man, representing springtime and rebirth. There is a man's face crowned with oak, ivy, hawthorn leaves and also includes all four national flowers. King Charles is emphasising the importance of wildlife and small creatures. Future generations should take care of them. The design is a delicate piece of artwork, but it has a good meaning to us all. The fact that it is printed on recycled paper shows how conservation of nature is so important. The next piece has been sent by Jane Holmes, a former editor on Whitney Talking News. And she says, These are thoughts on the coronation of King Charles III and Queen Camilla. Saturday the 6th of May 2023 was wet. I felt sorry for all the people who had camped out from Friday night along the Mall in London to watch the prospective King and Queen pass by. They must have been cold, wet and maybe hungry. However, their tents were decorated with Union flags and they all seemed happy. Many of them had travelled long distances just to be part of such a special occasion. I had a dry, comfortable view of it all from the sofa. Soldiers and horses were immaculately presented. Soldiers kept in time as they marched along the route from the Buckingham Palace to Westminster Abbey. The rain continued to fall and many brightly coloured umbrellas were to be seen. Police mingled with the crowds and everyone was safe. The coronation was the first one to take place for 70 years. I was not here then, so had no idea what was going to take place. All the more reason for watching it. Others who were alive in 1953 were, I suppose, comparing it to the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II. It was apparently very different. King Charles had put deep thought and planning into the production of his coronation. We learned a lot about the type of king he wants to be, and a lot about issues that are important to him. The royal family, friends and special people from a huge variety of charities, plus seven past prime ministers and leaders from overseas, combined to make up a congregation of approximately 2,200 people, each of whom had received a beautiful invitation beforehand. I realise now he wants to serve the people and care for them here and across the Commonwealth. His single sentence, I come to serve, not to be served, emphasises this fact and shows us what a humble, thoughtful man he is. He wants to unite us all, whatever religion we believe in, whatever race we are, and wherever we live, in unity, wherever we live, Unity is important to him, as it should be to us all. He united different religions with the Church of England. Buddhist, Hindu, Jewish, Muslim, Sikh and many more leaders had readings and statements during the service. The Archbishop of Canterbury committed King Charles III to foster environments 
where people of all faiths and beliefs live freely. From on, now onwards, King Charles III will be known as Defender of the Faith. Traditional and new ideas were to be seen throughout the service. A gospel choir sang a lively piece, and traditional music by Bach, Elgar, Parry, and more well-known musicians could be recognised. New composers had created new pieces for the occasion. Sir Andrew Lloyd Webber was asked to compose something cheerful. His tune was therefore aptly entitled, Make a Joyful Noise. The Queen wore a beautiful dress, covered in wild flowers, and those representing all four countries. England, a Tudor rose, Ireland, a shamrock, Wales, a daffodil, and Scotland, a thistle. She also had a silver crown and necklace. Other female members wore flowers in their hair, even Princess Charlotte. It was indeed an occasion not to be missed and one never to be forgotten. And I would like to add my own observations. As one who was alive in 1953, uh, the reduced lengths and numbers of the service and the numbers in the procession was very noticeable. To a nine-year-old, the many military um, from numerous countries wearing a variety of previously unseen uniforms and many mounted on horseback, were a sight that lives even now in the memory. After the return to Buckingham Palace at, of Charles's com, uh, con, coronation, I commented with admiration on the abilities of two people, only a couple of years younger than me, to complete such a ceremony. Now, in previous magazines, we've heard the story of Albert and the Lion, and it seemed most appropriate that in this one, uh, Albert has a reunion with the King of the Jungle. Albert's Reunion by Stanley Holloway You've heard of young Albert Ramsbottom and Mrs Ramsbottom and Dad, and the trouble the poor lion went through trying to stomach the lad. Well, after the lion disgorged him, quite many a day had gone by, but the lion just sat there and brooded with a faraway look in his eye. The keepers could do naught with lion, he seemed to be suffering pain, he seemed to be fretting for something, and the curl all went out of his mane. He looked at his food and ignored it, just gazed far away into space. When keepers tried forcibly feeding, they got it all back in their face. And at Mr and Mrs Ramsbottom's, the same kind of thing had begun. And though they tried all sorts of measures, they couldn't rouse Albert, their son. Now, Mr Ramsbottom got fed up at trying to please him in vain, and said, if you don't start to book up, I'll take you to Lion again. Now, instead of the lad getting frightened and starting to quake at the knees, he seemed to be highly delighted and shouted, Oh, Dad, oh, if you please. 
His father thought he had gone potty. His mother went nearly insane. But Albert stood firm and just bellowed, I want to see Lion again. So Mr and Mrs Ramsbottom decided the best thing to do was to give way to Albert and take him straight away back to the zoo. The moment the lion saw Albert, for the first time for weeks it had stirred, it moved the left side of its whiskers and lay on its back and just purred. And before anybody could stop him, young Albert was stroking his paw, and whilst the crowd screamed for the keepers, the little lad opened his jaws. The crowd were completely dumbfounded. His mother was out to the wide. But they knew by the bumps and the bulges that Albert was once more inside. Then all of a sudden, the lion stood up and let out a roar. And Albert, all smiling and happy, came out with a thud on the floor. The crowd, by this time, were all cheering, and Albert stood there looking grand, with the stick with the horse's head handle clutched in his chubby young hand. The lion grew so fond of Albert, it couldn't be parted from the lad, and so zoological keepers sent round a note to his dad. We regret to say lion is worried and pining for your little man. So, sending you Lion tomorrow, arriving in plain covered van. And, if you should go round any evening when Albert has gone off to rest, there's the Lion, all tucked up beside him, asleep with his head on his chest. And this piece is called So the Coronation's Over. So the coronation's over, with Charlie installed on the throne, with lords and ladies aplenty, and a queen to call his own. The procession with horses in number, and coaches drawn by eight greys, the crowd were cheering and shouting, full of good wishes and praise. Not all of the crowd were in favour of this royal occasion and do. They tried to disrupt the proceedings, so police had to arrest one or two. In the Abbey, the sight was resplendent, with guests who'd made quite a trek, from princes, politicians and world leaders, to others like Anton Deck. King and Queen sat there, anxiously waiting, all glittering and velvet of red. Then the old Archbishop came forward and placed the crown on his head. What a sight it was for the nation, to see him crowned, but by Eck, the crown was so blooming heavy, it gave Charlie a pain in the neck. Then he had other bits given him to signify royalty and power, like a gold orb and sceptre and sword held aloft for over an hour. Then all in attendance together joined in with one special thing, pledging allegiance as ever, and shouted, God save the king. Then the archbishop, surrounded by others, left king for Camilla instead, and with the deft of hand and in front of her stand and plonked a crown on her head. Then out took golden coach they paraded into the rain which had come to be joined by thousands of marchers in step to the beat of the drum as they rounded the corner they travelled the old creaking coach trundled by well wishers shouting and cheering not caring that they weren't very dry down the mouths trooped the thousands of forces each serving uh, service playing their part 
resplendent in uniforms polished, a sight to gladden the heart. Then, oh, the anticipation, the balcony appearance to begin, the crowd surging forward in excitement, waiting for a wave from the king. The balcony, full of royal family, waiting for flypast to start. Though planes were reduced in number, the Red Arrows still played their part. As everyone there looked skyward, all overcast with aircraft a few, then in came the famous Red Arrows, leaving trails of red, white and blue. Miss all the spectacle and glamour, oblivious of the solemnity below, one family member was amazing. Yes, Prince Louis stole the show. Well, that's all we've got time for, and we hope you enjoy listening to this magazine as much as we've enjoyed making it. And now you don't have to return your memory stick so promptly as you do after the weekly one, just return it when you finish with it. Many thanks to Eric for recording and choosing the music, and to all our contributors, Alan Bailey, Peter Brading, Debbie Dyken, John James Holmes, Nigel James, Valerie Palmer and Alan Ravel. And I know we'd all like to say goodbye, and so until next time, goodbye! goodbye.